Welcome to the second episode of C4 Recovery Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Jack O'Donnell. Some of you might know me as the CEO of C4 Recovery Foundation. As many of you know, C4 is dedicated to improving access to high quality, ethical treatment services for behavioral health and social wellness. We are fierce advocates for the often overlooked individuals and underserved populations within our society. Through innovation and forward thinking, C4 has developed service delivery systems for addiction and recovery programs throughout the United States and throughout the world in some of the most challenging environments. Each week on this podcast, we will hear stories from people who have benefited directly from programs C4 developed, those who assisted C4 in the process, and especially those still involved in the implementation of the programs today. On today's episode, we are discussing the issue of decentralized structures of treatment services. Public sector treatment programs have three main steps, service commissioning, service purchasing, and service delivery. When these steps are each controlled by disparate bodies, it muddles the system, making it harder for people to get help. This was a situation in the United Kingdom in the late 1990s, before C4 stepped in to design and implement a centralized coordinating body, the National Treatment Agency, or NTA, from 1999 to 2002. The main issue was whether such a big new investment would be spent efficiently. This is where Mike Trace comes in. Based in London, Mike experienced the disorganized system before C4's intervention and the drastic transformation that followed. And now here is his story. What we wanted to do in the national policy is, is make sure there were good services in every area of the country. In the early parts of my career, I worked with the homeless and uh, people in prisons in London. As a social worker, street outreach worker, also worked in the USA for a year in California with the Youth Authority there. So I learned about drug problems, drug addiction on the streets, so to speak, on the front line. And also because of my age, I was at the coalface when uh, real large-scale heroin addiction first hit Europe and the USA. Treatment provision in the UK has always been localized, but before the late 1990s, this was very patchy service provision. If services are fragmented and not very well planned, that absolutely undermines the effectiveness of the system. So we had a lot of services doing the best job they could, but they weren't partnered with other services. There was no continuity of care. There was no planning. So they all worked well within their own jurisdictions, but there was no coordination and careful strategy. So that undermined their effectiveness. Before we brought in this national policy, some areas of the country had no money at all. Some areas of the country put all of their money into methadone prescribing. So other areas of the country had 12-step programs, but nothing else. It was entirely accidental what parts of the country had a treatment offer. The biggest problem in the 80s and 90s in the UK was that the, the mismatch between the demand for treatment and the availability. When the heroin problems developed in the UK through the 80s and 90s, they were concentrated in the big cities. So there were large numbers of people that took the services by surprise. They uh, suddenly needed help and there wasn't much help there for them. 
So it's very hard for individuals to identify and decide that they wanted to go into treatment. It would be very hard for them to find out where the help could be received and also to get quick access to it. So, you know, it would very much depend on whether they were lucky enough that there was a local service that was accessible. Some people were lucky, but most people were not. Uh, rather accidentally, it was Tony Blair when he became Prime Minister who recognised something needed to be done about the level of drug treatment in the country. He didn't really have a sophisticated analysis of what should be done, but he did make the political decision that uh, treatment needed to be part of our response together with policing and uh, punishment and prisons. Very much in favour of treatment instead of punishment for people with drug and alcohol problems. So well, when Tony Blair's government came into power in 1997, he came in with a big social agenda and part of that agenda was to expand our treatment system. I was appointed as the deputy drug czar within six months of that government coming into power. And within the first couple of years of our strategy to improve treatment services in the UK, we had a big investment of cash. In the UK, we have a national health service, so social care and health care is nationalised and it's funded by the government. And those investments were increased 500% in the three years following 1997. I'm the lucky person who was in the right place at the right time who had to uh, design the way we spent that money. We wanted to spend the money as efficiently as possible and we wanted every town, every city in the country to have a menu of services that worked in a coordinated way. We inherited a, a mess of services, but some very good quality services, but they were not a system. So one of the main priorities for me when I was in control was to have a systemic approach to delivering all aspects of care in a very coordinated way in every area of the country. When I look back on what we tried to do in the UK 20 years ago, we have much more treatment availability now than we did 20 years ago. That's good, but when I look at the UK system and I look at the US treatment systems, we still have a major problem. We're spending an awful lot of money that has the objective of giving good treatment and recovery to as many people as possible. But that money is not being spent efficiently. Good political commitment, a lot of money spent, but it's spent in a very complicated piecemeal way. And it really does need both countries leadership again to take an overall strategy and say, are we getting exactly what we want out of this investment? And I see that Biden's making some very good statements about what he wants to do around drug treatment. That's great, but it's the money. Where the money goes, who spends it and what they spend it on is really crucial. And I think the US and the UK need a national drive now in 2021 to get that money spent a lot more sensibly. This is not a sorted problem. It's still a task. As Mike touched on, when public sector treatment programs are completely fragmented, it makes it harder for the people who need help most to receive it. When Steve Bohr was asked to help set up the Liverpool pilot in 1999, it revolutionized the addiction treatment system in the UK by giving the thousands of independent structures providing localized care one single centralized coordinating body. Providing a central authority made it possible for the first time to collect treatment outcomes and to help write relevant national policy. NTA, 
where the National Treatment Agency made it possible to commission services equitably across the country because at long last, there were standards of treatment services. With central budgeting oversight and care coordination, there was finally guidance on moving folks through different levels of care. For today's panel, we are joined by Mike Trace, the deputy drug czar at the time the NTA was founded, and internationally recognized lecturer, researcher, and clinician in the field of counseling, psychology, and addiction, Dr. Bob Lynn. Well, it's an interesting story. We began a pilot program, if you will, in New Jersey. Mike, I heard about the program from uh, Rick Ostrom, becoming curious and interested in what we were doing, and we were having some compelling results. Mike put together a coalition of folks from the UK to come and uh, visit us in uh, New Jersey. It was retrospectively one of the most momentous visits of, of, of uh, that I can remember. It was really the sharing of, of information. It was really a place that we were breaking down some uh, silos and barriers and beginning to learn from each other. And as a result of that meeting, uh, we were invited by Mike to come back to the UK and begin to develop similar programs in England. So Mike, you're in the UK. When did you realize that there was a serious problem with the delivery systems for addiction? I came into UK government in 97 and we started spending serious money on uh, expanding our treatment system through 99, 2000. We knew in the UK system, you raise taxes at central government and then you pass them down to local administrations to spend. So we were passing hundreds of billions of pounds down to local areas and we didn't trust them to spend it wisely. It's always the problem in the UK system is that money can disappear and be spent very inefficiently if you're not careful. So in this sector, substance misuse treatment, we wanted to be sure that the money would be spent in a balanced way to expand treatment availability, but also it would be spent to build a system, not a series of fragmented services that didn't talk to each other. And I thought after speaking to Rick and Bob and others at C4, I thought the biggest way to ensure efficiency in our system was to have some sort of case management and client advocacy system. And that's where we started the thinking about ETO and everything that followed it. So you've got this problem, but yet you have to prove to the government that you can execute a system that's going to work before they spend all this money. What was going on in Liverpool that that became the target for the pilot program? Probably somewhere around 2000, 2001. We put out a call for local areas to be pilot projects of this new approach, more a coherent approach. Uh, we got a whole number of applications. I think we chose five or six areas to be part of the pilot. And right from the start, Liverpool was always the best organized, most enthusiastic about this potential. That particular pilot project came and went pretty quickly, but the relationships and the proposals that were put together in Liverpool outlasted the pilot. And the model that me and C4 wanted to see implemented got implemented most purely in Liverpool. So C4 is now asked to participate in developing this program and being involved in the pilot in Liverpool. So Bob, you're sent over to, to London. What was your assessment of the situation when you got there? 
There were five or six different participants in the initial study, and uh, we had various levels of success in each one of these these different geographical areas. And in Liverpool, we had a lot of enthusiasm. So that was one of the reasons we continued in Liverpool. And at the time, the consulting psychiatrist was the person really in charge of the area. If you, you know, if you really wanted to get anything done, you really needed to have a partnership with that group. And so uh, we were introduced to the consulting psychiatrist. She was enthusiastic about the whole idea of centralizing treatment in a way that we were able to link 20 plus treatment programs so that, that we can provide seamless care across the care continuum. We actually did not have to get any new funds. What we really did was reorganize some of the systems that were already in place. And there were, you know, there were social workers who were going out to treatment centers on a, you know, a regular basis, but were not highly organized. What we basically did was organize them into a central intake model where clients could actually come through the initial center and receive treatment and be referred. They'd get a full comprehensive evaluation. And then we create a partnership with one of the treatment centers and send them to the treatment center. We also, also developed a relationship with the centers themselves where they enrolled their current clients in the system. So if an individual left treatment, their, uh, their evaluation would follow them. And uh, we had a really large reception where we invited police and I mean, everything from clergy, police, employers of different sorts, medical personnel, all came together as stakeholders and became part of the system. So it wasn't only treatment centers, but it was really a, a, a community-based program. And, it, and it, was, it was rather dynamic. You know, as I mentioned, we used existing resources and funds, but we used them in such a uh, more precise way that services were not duplicated, uh, assessments were not duplicated. A three-week withdrawal management detox system turned into a one-week system, and we were able to move that people through the continuum more quickly. C4 really has now a 30-year history of developing really kind of community-based programs. Back then, you know, what was the reaction to the the local people, so to speak, of doing this outreach into areas that you traditionally wouldn't have reached out to as just a treatment provider. What did the community think about this? Well, as Bob said, in Liverpool, I think the reception was very warm. And if you get key partners involved in any particular area, then that has a lot of credibility. So C4's work in Liverpool had a really good push from having some key people publicly back it. And it was generally quite visible quite quickly that this was having good results. So I think that's an example where there wasn't really any great pushback. From my memory, the real resistance we had was from some of the, may I say, vested interests in the treatment system that didn't want too much scrutiny. Basically what the case management ETO model was, was casting a very strong torchlight on whether services and processes were effective. And there were some providers and some system coordinators who didn't want that level of scrutiny. So we did have some resistance. You know, how did you track your clients and how did you get to the point where you said, hey, this system really works. We're helping people for the long haul. It's very difficult to change embedded systems. 
you know, we're talking at that point, you know, maybe 25 uh, years of, 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 of a belief system and an ethos that was so embedded that people coming in and, and asking to do things differently was apt to uh, create some resistance. And, you know, th there was no doubt about that. So to answer your question, you know, what we did was we began to look at not just outcomes in the more classical sense. You know, historically, people would look at outcomes based on abstinence. When did you take your last drug? And, you know, what does that feel like? And do you, are you having cravings and all those things? We went way beyond that, Jack. And we started to look at what's called proximal outcomes. In other words, we looked at family intactness. You know, are people participating in treatment? Are they, are they getting jobs? Are they meeting their individual goals? We started to look at those kind of things as opposed to simply how long you were staying drug free. And that created a whole new, a whole new science for us in a sense. You know, a whole new way of, uh, of thinking about recovery rather than thinking about a recovery as, as a line in the sand that you passed. We began to see recovery as a journey, as a continuum. We found that, you know, quality of life began to improve. Things like stigma, you know, thoughts about stigma were being changed because once you get the community involved and the people start hiring folks and start seeing people, uh, you know, in recovery, uh, you begin to change thinking. But, the, you know, it takes, a, it takes a while to do that. So, Mike, from the time the game plan was launched, so to speak, and I understand that it was actually at a football match where Mike Trace and Rick Orstrom pulled out a napkin and started designing this program, so to speak. From that day, how long did it take before you finally launched the, uh, the program itself? It's true. A lot of the ideas we had first at that game became the NTA and became the, uh, the case management model that Bob's described. I don't think it, it did happen over a couple of years. It has had a long-standing impact in the UK. Case management approaches are now uh, normalized in the UK. I don't think they're working in any way as efficiently as we dreamed of, but uh, they are bedded into our system. And the other thing I'd say is that the other part of the timing that was bad is just as this was gaining momentum in places like Liverpool, that's when I started to move away from the job I was doing with the National Treatment Agency and move on to other things. And uh, I don't think the people who took over from me at the national level had the same level of support for this initiative that, that I had given. So uh, we lost a bit of momentum there. I don't know how it felt from your end, Bob, but you know, I know you could still do the work locally, but you didn't have as much um, uh, political support, if you like, from the center. You know, that's a good point. I think we find that in every jurisdiction that we go, that some people, whether it's at a national level or whatever, are a little bit slower to grasp what we're doing. But I think, Bob, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I think that the program was recognized. I know because C4, you know, continue to do a lot of work in the United Kingdom after the Liverpool pilot. Is that true, Bob? Mike left the NTA and the NTA itself was going through some of its own internal changes and some of that was spilling over to us. We were working, if you would, kind of uh, beyond the NTA in a sense, because we were being contracted on the local level as opposed to the national level. And it was just through word of mouth, reputation, and uh, we began to do work in different areas. And that work really expanded because, you know, it wasn't just developing these kinds of systems. It was evaluating current systems and 
uh, doing some training on local levels. And and we, we stayed in the UK for many years and uh, we got involved with uh, some of the folks in the universities. You know, we had, uh, we did other kinds of trainings together. We did joint trainings with folks in the UK. So all of the work that we would do in Jack, whether it was training, whether it was consulting, whether it was evaluating treatment systems, always had as its underlying belief system that we can improve care by advocating for people across the care continuum and linking disparate systems. And that that was really that was really a big part of it. I mean, even in a small area, I remember in one area where there only had two treatment systems, we brought those systems together and at a meeting, and that was the first time that they met. And they'd worked together, you know, in this small area for years and years, and, and they didn't even know each other. So, you know, breaking down those kinds of barriers and, and, and breaking down silos and developing a more seamless care continuum, people began to talk to each other. The harm reduction folks began to talk to the abstinence folks, and things were happening that we were advocating for, but it wasn't only because of us. It was because of creating a system or a place that was fertile for this to happen, for it to grow. And I, I think people were hungry for change at that point. We just happened to be in the right place at the right time, if you would. So, Mike, how would you say your work has been affected by the pandemic? The pandemic makes it very hard to deliver the services we normally deliver. So outreach work, for example, you know, it's hard to put people out on the streets to help people who are struggling out there in a lockdown situation. My organization does a lot of work in prisons. Prisons are pretty much closed down for a year. You can't run treatment programs. So all of that's closed down and we're doing the best we can through phone counseling and, you know, written work. But uh, the face-to-face -face work is very constrained. At the same time, and I, I see some data from the US telling the same story is that the demand's going up. You know, if, if addiction treatment is all around people who are struggling, lonely, you know, not being able to get access to support from family or community, there's a lot more people in that situation than there was a year ago. So, uh, demand's going up, but our ability to get out, get our staff out there and meet that demand is very constrained still. You know, C4 took this process that succeeded in New Jersey and we applied it successfully in the United Kingdom. We proved that our process can be adapted to operate successfully in different countries and cultures. It takes persistence and tenacity and all parties had that in the United Kingdom. Listen, it sounds like a real success story. This pilot you were able to pull it off. I won't say seamlessly, but nothing is seamlessly. Mike, certainly on your part, I think it was visionary. I think it was bold. You had a lot of obstacles and you are to be commended for this effort that you made there. And quite frankly, C4 is very proud to have been associated with you on this project. I wanna thank you both for your time today. I think you've told a wonderful story. I think you've let the world know that we're out there advocating every day for people and we're not gonna stop regardless of the obstacles. So thank you very much for telling this story. Thank you for listening to the C4 Recovery Solutions Podcast brought to you by C4 Recovery Foundation. For more information, please visit our website at c4recoveryfoundation.org or email us at contact at c4recovery.org. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. I'll see you next time on the C4 Recovery Solutions Podcast. Goodbye.